and welcome to another edition of the Beer Ivana podcast, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing well, and how are you? It's a beautiful sunny day here in uh, Portland, Oregon. and That's right. We're podcasting from the very heart of Beer Ivana. That's right. Uh, so welcome back to the Beer Ivana podcast. With me is Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible, forthcoming from Workman Publishing. Jeff, I just purchased my limited edition hardcover, or pre-ordered, <laughs> from Amazon, unfortunately. I guess we're doing plugs, so only 1,500 of those are apparently going to go to print, so get them while they're getting good. Yeah, what's the, other, what's the point of a podcast? If you're not going to sell something. That's true. Uh, that's coming in August 2015. Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Publishing is coming... September. September. Sure. Uh, both of those you can pre-order at powells.com. Apparently, the hardcover, you can only pre-order at Amazon. Is that correct? Yes. The Beer Bible. That's true. Okay, and you can find him blogging at the Beervana blog. That's right. And with me is Patrick Emerson, a full professor of economics at uh, Oregon State University. You just got your uh, button this this last week, so congratulations. I'll be officially full professor, I think, of September 16th, so thank you, yes. Uh, Excellent. Uh, And you're also the research fellow, and this sounds quite impressive, at the Center for Applied uh, Microeconomic Research at the Sao Paulo School of Economics in Brazil. That's correct. Um, You can find Patrick blogging at uh, beeronomics. You can find me occasionally blogging at beeronomics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From time to time. So uh, the topic for today, Jeff, is loggers, American loggers. Uh, in the past few years, loggers, at least around here particularly, have been popping up like uh, weeds. They're everywhere now. Um, but for quite a while, they were anathema to craft beer lovers. Um, in order to get any lagers made, breweries had to sort of spice them up, treat them like sort of big ales that we're used to. But now, at least I'm seeing lots of pretty uh, straightforward, subtle uh, German and Czech style uh, lager beers. Yeah, it's for lager fans like me, and I think you, it's been uh, really nice to see this little boomlet develop. Yeah, and the thing is, it's not just so early on, and we'll talk about Heater Allen, but early on, uh, Heater Allen Brewing. Um, in McMinnville, um, was one of the early pioneers of lagering in the craft beer scene in Oregon. They're just a tiny little outfit. But now some of the big breweries that are sort of made their name with hot bombs like Ninkazi have become uh, quite adept at brewing really delightful uh, lagers. That's right. So uh, let's get to it then. So First, why don't you start us off by uh, describing what we mean when we say lager? What, what, what is a lager? Why is it different than, than most craft beer? Yeah, I think we should start at the, the beginning. Cause this is one of those things that um, after a while it seems like it's, it's too basic to ever ask, and we, we don't really talk about things as basic as what a lager is versus what, a, what an ale is. Uh, so it's nice to just define our terms. Lagers, uh, and actually there's a lot of misinformation here because people often say, uh, lager is a bottom fermented beer and ale is a top fermented beer, beer, which is really a weird description because uh, nobody cares how the yeast behaves. They care <laughs> what it does to the beer. And the much more important thing about lagers is um, they were, it was a, it, it comes from a style of brewing that was developed in Bavaria uh, five, like r- around 500 years ago, kind of lost in the mist of time, where uh, brewers were selecting yeast strains that would ferment at colder and colder temperatures. So they'd put these beers in caves and the 
and they kept repitching the, the yeast that would survive in colder and colder temperatures. What happens when yeast uh, ferments at cold temperatures is it doesn't produce any of the uh, flavor compounds that we associate with ales. So the, the fruits, the spices, the kind of stuff that you really see pronounced in um, uh, Belgian beers. Mm -hmm. In uh, lagers, you don't have those so much. Uh, so instead, you get a much cleaner read of things like um, the malt variety, the hop types, uh, if there's any water character, all those things really spring forward. So sometimes you'll hear uh, brewers say uh, that it's a very clean kind of beer. And what they mean is the f the, the ingredients really uh, present themselves very clearly. Shine through that. the yeast. But why is it that they were looking for yeast that could survive in colder temperatures? Is that a function of climate? Or, or what was it that led them to lager yeast rather than ale? Uh, I... I think it had more to do with the fact that um, it, it's a lot better to brew when it's cold. When mm -hmm. If you're brewing when it's hot, um, this was a, a time when, when most yeast was uh, at least partially infected by wild yeasts. And mm -hmm. one of the greatest, uh, uh, the, the two things that you can do to ameliorate the terrible effects on wild yeast um, are hops, which are antibacterial, and cool temperatures, uh, which inhibit the effect of the wild yeasts. So probably those wily Bavarians learned that they were getting much cleaner beer when they were using it at cold temperatures. I see. And is it true to characterize lagers as a regional style unique to uh, Bavaria, Czechoslovakia? Uh, yeah, well, originally, for sure. Um, and in fact, uh, it didn't even, so this it was pre-Germany, but um, in the part of that we now think of as northern Germany, uh, that was all ale country until uh, the 20th century, late late 19th and early 20th century. It was really a regional uh, until uh, Pilsners came along in the mid-19th century. Uh, lagers were a real niche thing in, in Bavaria and Bohemia, and everybody else in the country, or in the world, made ales. It just so happened that the immigrants to the United States that would end up sort of pioneering the brewing industry that would sort of flourish into the big macro brewing conglomerates that we now see were were people with those traditions um, in their background. That's right. And, and in fact, um, in the United States, we didn't really drink a lot of beer before they came. Um, we had the, from the English tradition, we, we didn't have great ingredients and uh, we were really a whiskey country. So we drank a lot of whiskey and, and liquor. Interesting. So, um, and we made, there are some places uh, made ale. Uh, there's a, Albany, New York, was famous for making some ales, and there were a few breweries around that were making a little bit of ale. But when you look at the the uh, per capita consumption of of beer before the mid nineteenth century, when the Germans got here, it was you know like three or four gallons a, a person. And by the time they started setting up these lager breweries and making these really spectacular beer from their homeland, um, it it you know it was like people were drinking twenty five gallons uh, yeah. a person. So they really were the ones responsible for that. Right. So fast forward now to the 1980s, I guess, is where when would, when would you sort of pin down the beginning of the what we would now call perhaps the craft beer revolution in the United States? Yeah, I think you could say um, you could give Fritz Maytag a nod in the 60s, but he didn't really change anything of anchor brewing. Of yeah. anchor brewing, right? Okay. He didn't he didn't really create the momentum to start things, uh, uh, start ale brewing. Um, that kind of came later, probably a decade later. So right late 70s, early 80s. Okay, so so the craft beer revolution in the United States could be thought of perhaps as a revolution against the macro lagers that were uh, 
uh, pretty much dominated the market at the time. Um, so I suppose it's natural, perhaps, that uh, that uh, the craft beer revolution was built on beers other than than lagers. Although I will mention that one of the early big successes in terms of mass market craft beer, and by the way, I'm as a disclaimer. For the life of this pod, I will use craft beer as a ubiquitous term to sort of describe what we might commonly think of as not macro brewing, not macro lagers. And I'm not going to get into the, <laughs> I don't want to worry about the, the politics behind that. So I'm going to call this craft beer. So one of the most popular early craft beers, at least in the East Coast, was the Sam Adams beer and uh, Sam Adams lager, in fact. So why was that? Uh, how is that distinct and how is ale distinct from lager? So so take us through that. What 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 was it about ales and and Sam Adams Lager that was different than the macro brews? Yeah. So I think one thing that happened was um, over the course of the pro uh, uh, post prohibition period uh, was you saw a kind of general watering down of the beer. So it became less and less interesting. So by the time you're in the mid seventies, um, we we pretty much had light lagers. That's all we had, and they weren't very interesting light lagers. They were they were all pretty much the same. This is right at the birth of uh, light beer. So that's the next generation of, of very flavorless things. So when uh, the craft brewers came along, they were they were against industrial beer, as they called it, and they really wanted flavor. So they, they, were, they were looking for anything that was flavorful. Part of the, you know, one of the allure of uh, ales is you can make them fast and cheap. So for, for these un super undercapitalized early breweries, that was a, a nice, uh, Thing to do so that that was one thing but it also they, they were so much full flavor they really in terms of um, creating a sensory uh, uh, rebuttal to mass market lagers they really served that purpose mm -hmm. so that's I think that's one reason why ales were were the predominant beer uh, I, that that we saw emerge in the craft beer era but there are some, like you mentioned, um, Sam Adams made a lager. His family comes from a long lager brewing tradition in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And there were other, uh, other lager brewing regions, like um, you and I have some history with uh, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, you remember back in the, the late 80s and early 90s, there were breweries like Sprecher and Capital, and they were making uh, only lagers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with um, trying to appeal to people who have a some appreciation for local beer. So if there's a if there's a local tradition, then you do find that. So Capital and Sprecher were making dark lagers and box and stuff like that. And then uh, yeah, that's what I remember of the early lagers is that they tended to be uh, less subtle. They were darker. They were stronger. They were more right. flavorful. Right. So there was a little a little uh, local color there, but they were also still trying to act as a rebuttal against the the large breweries. Okay, so so why now? Why, why is it at this moment that suddenly these very traditional light loggers are making a comeback, certainly locally in the Portland Northwest market, but uh, uh, as I understand nationally as well? Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting to me is being here in Portland, I watched people try to sell Pilsners for a long time, mm -hmm. and they've always failed. People just don't buy Pilsners. Or the ale, this is like the West Coast is where ales come from. It's so much so that, that West Coast-style brewing is now practiced all over the world. So the fact that we're seeing these lagers start to appear here is quite interesting. Uh, and I think it's a great test case for, for what where the market's headed. Uh, I think two things are interesting about the emergence of, of uh, loggers, and we're going to play a clip here to highlight one of those 
uh, reasons, and and that's that brewers themselves love lagers. They especially love pilsners. The the balance and the uh, the difficulty of making them and the balance that you get and the drinkability that you get are really have always been appealing to uh, brewers. It's kind of the apex of brewing to make one of these beers. So they've always been drawn to them. And then from a sensory perspective, they're also uh, it takes more a more subtle tasting apparatus to really appreciate them. And I think that's where brewers go to. So brewers have been one uh, group who've always tried to push these. And I think the other element is just that uh, as the market evolves and we start to become more familiar with different kinds of flavors in beers, you're seeing people come full circle. They started out at, at not liking small balanced beers. They went through the gigantism and the uber hoppiness and then they're coming back around and rediscovering these balanced flavors and rediscovering what a lager can do and how um, that clean balanced flavor is, is uh, so nice. Um, and I was talking to uh, Charlie Devereaux, who was one of the founders of Double Mountain in Hood River, and he's working on his own brewery, which is going to focus a little bit on lagers. He's a real lager lover. And when I spoke to him, he had just come back from Europe, where he'd traveled through Bavaria and uh, Czech Republic, talking to lager breweries. And he talked a little bit about um, why he thinks uh, the uh, lager thing is happening now. And let's play this clip, and then we'll, we'll come back. My anecdotal of evidence that I also feel like brewers lead a little bit, you know, what mm. brewers like, you know, eventually becomes true. It's not going to be long before every place has a Pilsner. I think that that's the, that's the next, I think every bar in Portland and every restaurant will have IPA and Pilsner and then, then a bunch of other stuff. So I think... I think Charlie makes a pretty bold uh, claim there that every uh, every pub will have an IPA, but um, I think there's a reason why he makes that. Not only is it uh, in, in terms of the drinkability and all that stuff, but um, they actually do have quite a bit of variability. And I think people who are, are becoming interested in these beers are starting to find uh, how, how it, within this small constraint you can make uh, all these different flavors, um, which actually is maybe a good time for us to transition to uh, tasting some of these beers. Yeah, before we do that, I just want to say one one more thing, which is, and this is a topic of an entire another pod, I don't want to go down too big a, a side street, but uh, one of the things that I think has gone hand in hand with the craft beer revolution, certainly locally, but I think nationally as well, is we have this sort of revolution in pubs. Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, uh, drinking alcohol out meant either in a restaurant or in kind of a dingy bar uh, uh, without windows and smoky. Um, part of what happened certainly in the Northwest was when these brew pubs started opening, they were very family friendly, very sort of bright open places. I know the early McMinniman's pubs sort of, that was the, that was a big point of what they tried to do. And, uh, what my point is getting, getting around to it is that I think people want to sit and enjoy, uh, um, being together and in a pub for quite a while, and if you're drinking double IPAs, it won't be long before you're right. under the table and not, <laughs> and, not, right. and not talking across it. So I think that um, there's sort of a growing appreciation of sessionability yeah. and uh, drinkability. So let's turn to the beers. Uh, why don't you tell us what we've got here? So as I open these, I'll, I'll uh, tell, tell you what we got. We got a Heater Allen, um, one of the first guys to get into lager making here in, in Oregon. Yeah, I was really excited when they started uh, brewing and bottling because I was uh, looking for something other than just the the uh, pale ale and the IPA, which seemed to be the two ubiquitous uh, porter and stout as well. Uh, we also have um, 
uh, Breakside Pilsner here. Um, it's one of their two uh, kind of flagship beers, mm -hmm. the German style. We have uh, one of Freem's Pilsners. They're just new in the bottle. They're from Hood River. And then the final one we have is Ecliptic's Spice of Pills, which is a Bohemian style. All right. So let's start with the the... The trend, the, the early, the pioneer. Let's let's start with uh, Heater Allen. I'll pour that. We'll get it close to the microphone here. Meanwhile, I'll pour the break side so we can get two-part harmony on our pour here. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with the Heater Allen. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, the Heater Allen. What are we drinking here? So uh, I tried to get a little stat on some stats on these and Heater Allen's is a, is a classic, uh, German pills, though. I don't know what, um, the hops he uses are, but it's 4.9% and, and he says it's 37 IBUs. It's always worth noting that, um, unless you have these chemically tested, it's the IBUs may not be quite accurate. So, yeah. um, yeah, yeah. Another topic for a podcast, right. but, IBUs. Uh, that, that tastes quite bitter. I have to say, speaking of IBUs. Yeah, one thing that Heater Allen has, uh, I'm always impressed with, is he gets a ton of character out of the yeast. So mm -hmm. we just talked about how the yeast gets out of the way. But this has a, a really, uh, it's almost got a little bit of a farmhouse quality. Is that a function of the temperature at which they uh, ferment in, in lager? I don't know. I don't know their process. So By I the way, let, let's, let's go back to something really fundamental. Uh, where does the term lager come from and what specifically does it refer to? So I don't speak German, uh, and I'm now going to pass on secondhand knowledge. Excellent. Uh, according, <laughs> I understand that lager means to age, and so the word oh, comes okay. from the process of uh, aging the beer, which is actually the second part of the the whole process that we didn't really that I didn't describe earlier, which is that uh, once you do the go through primary fermentation, when you ferment at a really low temperature, mm -hmm. what happens is uh, you produce a lot of raw kind of sulfurous compounds mm. and it needs to sit a while to mellow out so uh that's when you uh set it put it down to lager or to age yeah now that you mentioned it, i will say that I, I do definitely notice the yeast in fact on the nose as well mm -hmm. with the heater allen it does have a lot of yeast characteristics coming through uh both on the tongue and on the nose let's compare it now to the break side huh <laughs> well this is funny sorry uh ben edmonds um, <laughs> we're gonna have to out you now um this is one of my favorite beers uh, in the city. I just love this beer, and I drink yeah, it, I it a lot. I drink, I drink it at the pub whenever I can. But Ben's—I uh, just was—I just had an ex a re an exchange with him today. Um, he's having some trouble with diacetyl, which develops in his beer. He says between thirty and forty days, and he was really hoping that it wouldn't be in this beer, but it is. It's got a little <laughs> diacetyl. In Fortunately, it. I'm completely immune to diacetyl. Mm. I, I don't sense it or taste All it. All right, so. you tell me what you find in there, because that just tastes like diacetyl to me. Uh oh. So diacetyl, for those of you listening yeah, let's, let's haven't explain. Uh, encountered this, is a, uh, a compound that yeast produce, produces. Um, it, it will typically happen in primary fermentation. And, um, brewers will make sure before it goes out of the, the, uh, the brewery that uh, it doesn't have diacetyl, which tastes uh, a little bit like butter. It's a, got a, a th it can taste thick on the tongue. Uh, a little so, butterscotchy, maybe. Yeah, or? butterscotchy. Um, mm -hmm. Are you picking it up? I it? am picking it up slightly. I don't find it unpleasant in general. So, but but I remember I remember this from from ales and how um, important it is not to not to send ales out too early so they have a 
the DAS will rest. But in this case, this seems counterintuitive that it would sort of appear much later. I and I we should at some point loop back around if we can remember and figure out uh, a time to ask Ben about why why a beer would develop diacetyl in the bottle. I, I don't know anything about that. Either. Yeah, although I you mentioned that from his text, he's it's still something they're trying to figure out. They're trying so. to figure that out. And he's, so. Yeah. Well, I still. But it is a classic. It's a it's a classic German style uh, pilsner, which means it's got soft. And when I've I've had this enough times that I can actually talk about it without having tasting this one. It's got mm -hmm. very soft malts. Yes. Uh, very uh, uh, kind of warm, bready malts, and mm -hmm. then it's got that lovely Holler Tower hop laced over it, which is very delicate and uh, floral and herbal. It's a wonderful hop. It's German Germany's classic hop. Yeah, I will say that at its best, I think it's one of the best local uh, pilsners for exactly those reasons. I like it because it's so subtle. Um, to use the Heater Allen as an example, the Heater Allen is a little bit bracingly bitter to me, and, you, mm -hmm. and it's more uh, yeasty, as we've talked about. Um, that I hadn't noticed before. But uh, the break side, the hops are, are quite lovely. They're floral. They're not, they're not bracingly bitter. They're really quite, uh, quite subtle and, and, and delightful. And this is the Breakside Pilsner is a beer that you could imagine sitting for quite a long time, uh, sipping um, over a long evening of, of beer drinking. And but I this, have done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've done that with you, in fact. So the Freem is the next one I want to try because it contrasts nicely with these first two. You can, you can see in the glass uh, the difference between um, – for some reason, this one's a little bit murky too. Break sides. Uh, Freem's is easily the one of the palest that I've seen, and I, I I'm assuming that that means that uh, Josh Freem does a little filtering. Yeah, it's quite uh, pale. It's very clear. It's very bright, and uh, it's quite effervescent. As super well. effervescent. And this one uses uh, Tetanang hops, which is another hop from Germany. And it's a very distinctive, quite a bit different hop. So mm. give that a taste and see how that differs. I it's will. And while I'm tasting, let's. Uh, Let's um, go to one of our uh, listener questions because this is something that I want to ask as well. So Mark Bunster asked, can you break out the style difference between Czech and German Pilsen and where our craft lagers fall along these lines? So you've just mentioned uh, three of these are German style, um, the first three that we're, that we're tasting. So what is, that, what is the difference between a Czech and a, and a German Pilsner? So... Uh, of course, that Pilsen, Pilsen's in Czechoslovakia, so that's, I guess, the first thing. <laughs> that's right. So, so uh, the birthplace of the of, uh, the Pilsner style is, is Pilsen, Czech Republic, then uh, part of the Austrian Empire. Um, and it was the first really clear, a really pale lager that was made. There were earlier pale lagers, but this was the most pale. And let me just taste that frame. Oh, those are such interesting hops. They're very, much more spicy, almost, um, they have almost a little bit of a uh, citrusy mm -hmm. zing to them. And then apropos, I don't know if you if you picked this up, but you mentioned the, the yeast and the heater, Alan. I definitely have this sense of a sort of a very vaguely farmhouse quality to Freem's. Hmm. I'm not getting that. It seems pretty classic to me. But anyway, to get back to the uh, the difference between uh, Czech and, and German, so it, it took decades for the Germans to uh, adopt a pale beer. They were really into uh, dark beers. Oh, okay. Munich was a Munich was a dark beer, a dunkel uh, city. Mm -hmm. 
so when they finally did, they be, they were Hellas loggers, and then which means meant pale, and then they and then the Pilsner style migrated, finally migrated to Germany uh, in the uh, late late nineteenth and early twentieth century. And the big difference is um, the uh, the the there's actually two differences, which I didn't appreciate until I visited. Czech Republic. In the Czech Republic, they use different kinds of malts. They're a little bit more rustic. They're they're floor malts. They're actually more like uh, the malts that you find in in uh, England, mm -hmm. which is interesting because the uh, German malts are much like everything in Germany. They're really uh, well. They have great malting there, and they're very uh, very sophisticated. So they make really pure, wonderful malts. Um, hops are a big difference too. Uh, the hops. That we're, and we're about to try ecliptics, which will be a really good moment to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the classic hop in the Czech Republic is Saz, or Zatech uh, in Czech. And it's got this totally characteristic uh, kind of tangy uh, herbal quality that's unmistakable. Um, and so when you taste any any beer that's got that, you just can't help but, but think of the, the Czech lineage. So let's try ecliptics, which uses... Uh, Sterling hop, which is actually, it's not the same as, as Saz, but it gives a pure, for domestic hops, it gives the purest representation of the Saz flavor that mm -hmm. we get here. Hmm. Now that I've had the Freem a couple of times, I'm going to come back around and, and agree with you a little bit that I think it's just a, a quite flavorful hop characteristic of Freem that's the Freem is really delightful by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. I think Josh Freem, for those of you who have who live uh in in Oregon and have a chance to buy some Freem beer, it's uh, really, really good special stuff. Josh Freem is doing some great work in Hood River, which Hood River for such a small town has some really amazing beer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you're gonna and by the way, uh this Memorial Day weekend I was out hiking in the Columbia River Gorge and and there were so many rental cars and tourists in and around Portland and the and the vicinity. Um, I was quite struck by how many people are, are vacationing here. And uh, I was mentioning this to a friend, and he said apparently that Portland is sort of the number two Memorial Day vacation spot. I don't know by what metric, but uh, um, but what I was going to say is if you're going to take a trip to, to Portland, Oregon, especially if you're interested in beer, you should definitely, definitely, definitely not miss Hood River um, right. for lots of reasons, partly because of the beauty and the beauty along the way, but uh, probably, uh, mainly because of the beer. By the way, the Ecliptic, I haven't even tasted it, tasted it yet, and I've never tasted this beer until now. Hmm. But on the nose, I'm getting a real malt, real malt hit. Yeah, that's a uh, – the the Czechs – so the, the – the, you know, we all know about Pilsner Urquell, the most famous – uh, brewery, which is in, when you're in the Czech Republic, it's the only beer that they'll call Pilsner. Everything else is called a Svetle Lejak. Uh -huh. The Ur Pils is the only one that earns the title Pilsner there. So if you ever order a Pilsner in Czech Republic, they'll give you a Pilsner or Quell. Okay, interesting. Um, and that beer is uh, quite different than all the other ones, too. It's interesting. That's, um, I was going to say, because I wouldn't associate Pilsner or Quell with this kind of real malt, sort of rustic malty. Yeah. It's uh, you've. There's a huge variation of, diff of beer st of in s the Svetlana Ajaks in uh, the Czech Republic, and some are quite malty, some are not very hoppy. Budvar, people have had that, it's not very hoppy. Some are quite stiffly hoppy. Um, Pilsner Urquell actually has a ton of diacetyl by design, uh, not quite as much as our break side here, but uh, actually maybe that's what Ben can say, that he was pursuing the, the uh, Pilsner Urquell that's right, presentation yes. with the diacetyl. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, this I think is a good time to talk about. Uh, you know, I mentioned it before that uh, that tastes are evolving, perhaps, um, and that uh, people are starting to appreciate beers that are not quite as strong, don't quite hit you over the head quite as hard, both in terms of flavor but also in terms of alcohol. So more sessionable beers. And uh, you were uh, um, talking to the uh, brewer at Firestone Walker, whose name is Matt Brindelson. And Matt Brindelson. Uh, and you he had a very interesting uh, take on this. Um, so why don't we play that quote, uh, that, that clip for, for you guys now. And, you know, and all of us, the longer we drink craft beer and the more we get into to, to craft beers, gain in our appreciation to highly drinkable, fairly light alcohol and sessionable beers, whereas, you know, the... You know, when we first got into craft beer, it's like the bigger, bolder, and crazier beers are what we were really seeking. But at the end of the day, beer is about balance and drinkability, and Pilsners kind of just exemplify that. There's no wonder that they're the best-selling beers in the world, or at least, you know, pale interpretations of Pilsner beer are the best-selling beers in the world. Uh, I think he captures the essence of the the appreciation of Pils perfectly. And, you know, we we have these four beers here and I, I, I chose them partly because they're different, but also partly just because they were the ones that you could get on bottle in bottles. Um, in Portland, you also find uprights, which I think is just fantastic. Pilsner, uh, the common sometimes makes one and then makes one, uh, full sale makes one. There's a lot of these things out there. And, it, and if you, Bowie, Bowie, oh, Bowie, yeah, that's, that's right. Really Bowie nice pilsner right now. Fantastic one. These taste these in a in a flight. I think you'll s begin to see just how broad the whole s the style is and and how much uh, variation. Yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to say it on, on. It's hard to describe it in a pod. But the four beers we have in front of us are actually quite different. Yeah. In, in color, in in clarity, in effervescence, in flavor, and and uh, so um, it's. It's really neat to have so many different choices now. Yeah, so I think that makes a good since we there are so many choices. I think it, it maybe this is a good opportunity for us to talk a little bit about the market since we're seeing what looks like at least in Portland a little mini market in Pilsners developing mm -hmm. enough enough of a market that these breweries can can afford to devote some tank space to Pilsners. Um, why don't we uh, talk about the, the economic side, Patrick. Um, one thing that has always mystified me, like if you look, humans like variety. Mm -hmm. Humans, if you know, it's 31 flavors. You don't, you don't have an ice cream store that's one flavor. But in the United States, we had one flavor of beer in a, one of the freest market economies ever in the history of the world. We had one beer. So how did that happen? How did we get here? Talk a little bit about this weird this weird history that we have, this legacy of these loggers. Yeah, so that's 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 something that fascinates me as well. Um, and it's interesting. And I really think, and I'll probably say this a lot as I go along, but I always sort of separate things into both sort of supply-side phenomena and demand-side phenomena. Um, and uh, I'll put off the demand. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it. But, um, uh, but first, the supply-side, sort of the market forces on the supply-side, I think. First, in terms of the macro-brewing, which is that... Beer um, is an industry, and I've mentioned this many times on my blog, and I'll continue to men mention it. I think the biggest economic force in brewing is economies of scale. Beer is heavy. Beer is um, uh, takes up a lot of uh, space in tanks and in um, uh, fermenters, and and so 
the bigger the scale you uh, can brew at, the, the lower the cost per ounce of beer um, you can generally achieve. And I think that uh, I'm get, my guess is that early on that was especially true, especially with transportation issues, um, so that it made more sense, it made a lot of sense for brewer, brewers to try and push a single style of beer. And I think that's also, you can answer this perhaps more, uh, more clearly, but that's also a bit of a tradition going back to Europe that these regional styles were, were quite dominant. Um, so they're in, they're coming from this tradition where you'd have one regional style beer in, you know, uh, Munich meant Dunkel or some specific variety, and that's what you drank when you were in Munich. And if you wanted a different beer, you went you went somewhere else. So I think that right. was that's that was right. part of the tradition. But I also think it, the economics builds into that. You can you brew one beer, you brew it at as big a scale as you can, and try to keep the cost down, and create this mass market lager. I think that's also. Uh, um, uh, feeds into the demand side phenomena. Um, and what I think about sort of the craft beer market um, uh, in modern times is sort of the same as in the beer market maybe as it grew um, originally into these mass market loggers is that, you know, we, we tend to think of demand as some sort of latent characteristic that there is a demand out there for craft beer that um, just is untapped. And what's happened is these breweries have uncovered this latent demand and but I actually don't think it works like that at all. I really think that um, demand is endogenous. Demand is derived from the conditions. Um, when we when we draw a demand curve, it's a relationship between price and quantity. And then we say, well, lots of these other things can shift the demand curve around. And what we're really talking about is this continually outward shifting demand curve for craft beer because people are learning what craft beer is and what craft beer can be and how much they actually perhaps like craft beer. But it takes time. Uh, I don't want to throw too much economic jargon, but we no hit us, man. <laughs> but we talk about these things called experience goods, which are goods that you don't know whether you're going to like until you actually try them. So in some areas, you can look at something in piece of art and say, okay, I like, I know if I like that or not. But if you're buying, I don't know, laundry detergent or uh, a new type of a new uh, brand of mustard or or beer, you don't know until you actually purchase it and try it. And sometimes it even takes a while to sort of acquire a taste taste for it. So I think that's that's what we've seen in the United States and what happened early on, partly as a way to distinguish themselves from macrobreweries, is that craft beer went for something that quite different. And so early on, the demand for craft beer meant the demand for something quite, quite different. Um, what I think over time is that people have started to understand that craft beer can be lots of different things and it can be lots of different styles. And um, in fact, craft versions of these lagers and pilsners or these pilsners and other types of lagers um, can be quite different and delightful and um, much more flavorful and much more satisfying than the macro counterparts. So, so in a product like beer, where you're where you're seeing, uh, and actually, I think we have a nice in the United States, since each region is at a different place in development, we actually have kind of a, a real-time experiment running where mm -hmm. we have uh, control groups. Um, in a city like Portland, where we're ha where we have such an advanced beer culture, you know, where you can talk to people about the varieties of hops, and um, they know what you're talking about, they have opinions about that. Would you expect uh, more variety? Like, wh where's the curve on that between, you know, too much variety, too little variety? Like, what wh is something going to settle out? We we heard Charlie make a bold prediction earlier that if there's going to be IPAs and pilsners and then everything else is. You know, where's the yeah well you've, well so you know variety is expensive uh, if you're yeah. a business person it costs a lot more to make 
10 different beers than it does to make three. And so when you're starting out, you go for the big fat part of the market, which is where the, where the demand curve has you know, originally started. It was IPA pale ale. Um, I think over time, as that demand sort of becomes more evolved and the, there is a bigger demand for those smaller varieties, let's call them for now, um, then it becomes more cost effective to actually make those beers. So you can actually sell a lot of Pilsner now where you might not have before. And if you can't sell a lot, there was usually no, no point um, in trying to brew these tiny batches of, of beer at, at high cost and, and try to move them along. So I think that you know, it's all a part of the evolution of the market on, on, uh, on that end. And by the way, the regional differences are quite fascinating because, you know, as uh, you mentioned, we lived together in Wisconsin in the mid-90s, early 90s, um, and the craft brewing tradition there was really a German lagering tradition. Right. Um, and I think that because of the dominance or the real growth of West Coast craft beer, they probably went into IPAs and pails a lot faster than we have come around to doing the loggers, but it really was a, a, also a function of the area. We, we're an area in the Pacific Northwest where we have uh, a lot of hops, um, and uh, we can sort of build these pale ales and these IPAs to really, really highlight those those hops. And, and Wisconsin is an area of a lot of German immigrants, and there's still a lot of tradition of lagering there, and they can sort of make more traditional beers in those, in those, styles, in those styles as well. So, oh. Were you gonna, well, I was going to say, and the other the other issue that that has been mentioned um, a couple of times already is the other, the other thing about brewing a lager is it's hard and it's expensive. I mean, right. Relative to an ale, an ale you can you can brew, you can ferment it at room temperature, so you don't need to cool it, uh, you don't need to worry about refrigeration, and you can serve it pretty quickly um, after it's done fermenting. Lager takes cooling, it takes time, right, and it's a pretty difficult style to brew because it's a pretty simple beer. Um, uh, we heard this when we were in England quite a bit, that there's a lot of things you can hide in a big giant IPA right. because you can just throw hops on top and sort of drown a lot of flavors. And in fact, and in fact I think Matt Brindleson, say, say his name again? Brindleson. Brindleson at, uh, at Firestone Walker has an interesting uh, quote about that as well. So we can play that for you right now. Right, and I think um, this is a, a quote from Matt, but... Uh, if you talk to brewers very much, what he says, I think, is pretty typical of what you hear brewers say about uh, about loggers. So let's listen to that now. Right. I think the other the other facet of that comes from the brewers themselves. The longer you brew and the more you try to hone your technical skills as a brewer, uh-huh. you you end up being le- you you get led to lager beer, and yeah. lager beer is tricky. You know, you're fermenting at lower temperatures. You're working with a yeast that's a little um, you know trickier to to manage your your brewing beers that are light in body and flavor, generally speaking, so you can't hide any off flavors. You're you know you're dealing with these sulfur off notes that you have to manage. I mean, there, there's tricky beers to master. So that's an interesting quote, especially because we got a, a question from uh, one of our um, big fans. I'll call them <laughs> uh, with apologies. I'll, yeah, with apologies. Uh, no, thank you very much for for sending your questions in. So Oliver Gray asked, "Do you think the simpler?" Uh, in parentheses, arguably harder to brew styles, will make some breweries look bad when they can't hide defects behind copious amounts of hops and other extreme flavors. So Matt's essentially saying that this is a challenge for uh, for brewers. Um, we, you know, we finally decided to try out a lager a few years ago, and we brewed what may still be what the brew, the beer that I consider our most um, accomplished or, or best beer that we've 
we've brewed. And uh, I remember you telling me you mentioned this to um, a local brewer, and, right. and his response was, yeah, it's not so hard to brew it once really well. What's hard is to brew the same beer again and again in high quality. And we have, in fact, experienced this because ever since then we've grown, brewed pretty good Pilsners, but not quite like that first Yeah, one. never captured the same lightning in the bottle. Uh, so I think that's another, but in general, I think that's another aspect of why it's been a long time, it's taken a long time for Pilsners to catch on. And I, uh, I think this is one of those interesting cultural moments too, because uh, there's that goes both ways. Brewers have to work very hard to produce these beers in anything like a consistent, uh, high quality uh, uh, manner. And uh, if the customer isn't can't really appreciate that quality, then there's a disconnect there. But now uh, in Portland, I think we're, starting to find people who really do appreciate these subtler flavors, uh, this kind of uh, more high-wire brewing. So they also appreciate it. So the brewer works very hard to make it, and actually the customer appreciates it. This is one thing you see in Germany where they make these kind of beers. The customers really know the difference between a, a good lager and a bad lager. So there's a feedback loop there, a cultural yeah. feedback loop. Yeah. And speaking of, of production techniques and the difficulty of producing lagers, um, uh, Mark Griffin writes in to ask about decoction brewing. Yes. Is it completely un unnecessary with today's malting practices or still worthy of use? So can you tell us what decoction means? And Yeah. So deco deco decoction, thanks, Mark. That's a good question that mm -hmm. I wouldn't, we were not going to, uh, we had not thought of to talk about that. You can just give us the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, I'll give you the Cliff Notes. So decoction is this weird old process that predates um, modern techniques when people like for thermometers imagine brewing before you had a thermometer the brewing process requires you to hit these uh these exact temperatures in order to get certain enzymatic pro uh, changes to happen um so before we had thermometers there was no way to do that and they developed this weird system uh I, i'm not actually sure if it was a it was probably a a bavarian system but um it's now much more associated with czech brewing in order to make a, a thing called a, 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 P, a Czech piva, Czech pills, by law, it has to be decocted. So uh, all of the Czech brewers are still doing decoction? If they're making um, a thing called Czech piva, which is, so all, this, all, the, all the pilsners, the Svetle Lajeks, will be, uh, they'll, all, they'll all be decocted. Decoction mm -hmm. is totally standard there. Mm -hmm. And it's this crude system where you, um, you start out with a cool, your mash is kind of cool, and you pull part of the mash out and boil that, and when you dump it back in, it raises the entire temperature of the mash to the next step. Mm -hmm. And they do it, I think, typically in about thirds. So they'll pull a third of the mash out and boil it and put it back. So and what's the what's the take? Is it is it necessary in modern brewing? Is it just a, an old technique that's held on by tradition? You know, uh, th there's no answer to this. Um, there are proponents, the pro you will not be shocked to learn, that the proponents of uh, decoction believe it creates a great deal of uh, difference. And when I was hanging out with the guys at Budvar, um, I had uh, Adam Broche tell me all about how uh, decoction was a critical uh, part of uh, brewing. Then I went to Eyinger, uh, and w which is in uh, just south of Munich, and they had just recently installed a brand new brewery uh, outfitted with a uh, decoction cooker, and they decided, this is ridiculous. This is a crude old system, and we're not <laughs> going to do it. And they make, I think anybody who's ever had any of the Iyengar lagers, uh, they make some of the best lagers in the world. I just love Iyengar. So it's um, that, that you have to, there's a subtlety uh, in the way that it, it produces melanoidins. And I think, I think yeah, some people actually have the capacity to taste that. I don't know that I do. Um, so I, I think it's one of those, it's one of the things that makes brewing great. Uh, are there any local breweries you know that are doing decoction or is it all? 
I don't know any local breweries that are doing decoction, um, though I bet we could probably talk one in to try it. So I, I suppose that I suppose that the the short answer then is it's unnecessary to produce the types of beers we're drinking today, which are of least in my mind, very high quality and, and interesting, flavorful beers. That's absolutely right. It, it was the case that back in the back in the day, back in you know hundreds of years ago, the uh, malting techniques were also terrible. Again, no thermometers, so uh, the malts were not very well suited to modern mashes, and you needed to subject them to these longer pro processes mm -hmm. to even right. get uh, get the sugars out that you would want. Right and now, of course, we don't need to do any of that, so you can make a really a nice uh, beer with yeah. without decoction for sure. Well, it's getting almost time to wrap up, but I'd like to, to leave with one last question uh, from actually a friend of ours, Joe Bertinoli, who, who wanted to know whether, um, in fact, you can probably uh, read the quote, but I'll paraphrase. Are there other uh, lager styles that are being brewed in the Northwest? Is it all Pilsner or, or, or what are some other styles that we might find at the, on the stores? You know, it's uh, and that's a great question, Joe. Uh, there's not really so many. I mean, Nankasi makes a f absolutely spectacular Hellas and um, called i think it's lux i think that's the one they call lux okay. um it's one of their uh it's not the hellas bells it used to be okay so now they've renamed it i think it's now called lux okay um so they make that uh i know that uh alan taylor at pints also makes a hellas at, a, mm. at his small brew pub but and heater allen do a few different varieties they, and they do do a few different varieties coastal common which is pretty interesting beer yeah and they do a bach but um no, you don't really see very many of these, which is kind of a fascinating thing. Um, you will, I think. You think so? I, 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 if Pilsners catch on, then I imagine you'll start seeing more. That's what, that's a question I was going to throw out to you. Do you think this is uh, the Pilsner thing that we're seeing now, and it, we, you could apply it to lagers in general? Do you mm -hmm. think it's it, is it a fad, or is it is it going to be with us? No, I think it's going to be with us. I, I, I give the same answer when people ask, and I'm asked a lot about whether I think that there's a craft beer bubble. Mm -hmm. um, my answer typically is twofold. One is... Um, I certainly think there's going to be a lot of churn in the market. There's going to be breweries that go out of business, um, and they that might start happening fairly regularly, but that's what you might expect from a mature industry that's really grown. Um, but that I don't see that we've sort of um, far out, uh, capacity as far outpaced demand because demand is continuing, continuing to evolve. Um, and I don't really see any stop in that process anytime soon. And part of the reason is exactly this. You're starting to see different beers, more beers out there. So it's not just uh, people might get tired of IPAs and pale ales all the time, but they're starting to discover there are more and more and more varieties out there to uh, uh, to consume. And so I think that the, the industry is still in a pretty early stages of maturation. So I would expect that a lot of these beers are here to stay and that we'll start seeing more and more um, particularly sessionable uh more sort of approachable, smaller um, beers, not just lagers, also also lighter ales um, as well, like we talked about last time. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know that I can sign on with Charlie Devereaux's uh, assertion that there's a, that Pilsner is going to join IPA as one of the two big styles here, um, but I but I do think it, it's shown enough um, promise already that it's probably going to be at least a, an, enough of a style that you and I are going to be able to go to the store and buy it. By a Pilsner from yeah, Vana, and this is the Beer Vana podcast, so we're pretty we're pretty regionally focused because that's what we have around, and beer is a sort of a pretty regional thing. But in other parts of the country, particularly particularly in the South, warmer, hotter. Yeah, if it can survive, I think this is one of those styles. If it survives here, it'll definitely. And I think already uh, there are a number of Pilsners 
nationwide that have done well. Um, Victory Prima Pills is a classic from mm-hmm. Philadelphia, and, and there are a number of Pilsners that are doing well enough. So the fact that Pilsners have made it to Portland, it's like uh, uh, that's, the, that's the real shocker, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, we should end the podcast. So pick a beer and let's uh, let's um, raise a glass to Pilsners. I'm picking the Freem. I'm picking John Harris's uh, Spice of Pils from Ecliptic. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Saúde, as they say in Brazil. Uh, Nazdravi, as they say in Czech Republic. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, this is the Beervana Podcast. Jeff can be found at uh, the Beervana blog and uh, tweeting at Beervana. And Patrick can be found at uh, Beeronomics, also tweeting at Beeronomics. That makes it easy. Okay. Cheers, Jeff. All right. Cheers. Cheers.